lives. He is making us disciples. Um, and so with that, we're going back into our study on a portrait of a king throughout the Gospel of Luke. Um, and if you remember, this was three weeks ago. We left off with 12-year-old Jesus in the temple uh, teaching and instructing a bunch of elder gentlemen who were there um, while his parents were searching for him. So he was gone for about three days. His mom and dad didn't know where he was. They come back. They fi Imagine finding your 12-year-old boy in a temple with rabbis and elders, and he's telling them how things are. And when they ask, why was he there? Why have you treated us this way? Jesus' response was, I am about my father's business. That's what it means to be a disciple. We are about our father's business. It's the motto of all disciples. And so now what we're doing this morning is we're entering into Jesus' adult and public ministry. There's no records of Jesus from age 12 to age 30. Gospels aren't trying to give us a biography of the life of Christ, but they want to tell us about his ministry and his work, particularly leading up to the cross. And so the first thing that Luke discusses in Jesus' public ministry is John the Baptist. And if you remember back in chapter 1, way back around Christmas time, there was a prophecy. An angel came and spoke to a man named Zechariah in the temple. You remember he's lighting incense and the angel shows up and tells him that his prayers have been heard and that he was going to have a son in the spirit and power of Elijah and you're going to name him John. And so now this John shows up and he's going to do what it is he had been prophesied to do. So let's read from Luke chapter 3, verses 1. Uh, I think we'll go to about verse 14, and that'll be our text this morning. Starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of, uh, in the, book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. 
Let's pray one more time. Father, bless the reading of this word to our hearts. Uh, By your spirit, give us the wisdom to understand and apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So as you already know, uh, because either you're off from work or your kids don't have school tomorrow, it's MLK weekend. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., born January 15th, back in 1929, uh, and grew up to be the most civil, the most famous civil rights activist that our country has ever seen. And so this weekend has really become a time to celebrate racial diversity, which we have in this country. And while it, it also is a reminder that we need to continue to keep working toward uh, certain reforms and reconciliation to, uh, to, to weaken those dividing lines that we have. And if we're honest, uh, the racial climate in America, most of us are old enough to remember, uh, it's ebbed and flowed, and we're now at a peak again uh, where there seems to be tension. I don't know exactly what the cause is. I'm not a sociologist, but, um, you know, some of the things I remember, uh, I remember Kanye West years ago getting on TV after Katrina and saying George Bush doesn't care about black people. And then you had the election of Barack Obama, and then now we have President Trump. And all three of the last presidents have kind of brought about this racial tension in our country. And while we've made a lot of progress since Dr. King was assassinated in April 1968, there's still a lot more to be made. And oddly enough, the racial tensions in America have caused the church to rethink how we approach race within, uh, within the walls of Christianity. Uh, last year was one of the coolest moments of my life where I got invited to Spanish River Church to uh, preach on their MLK weekend. If you follow me on Facebook, I'm going to post it tomorrow because I'm excited about it. Uh, but what I, what I spoke about there was back in 2017, there was the 45th General Assembly of the PCA. PCA is Presbyterian Church in America. We are a PCA church. And at that General Assembly, which is a gathering of all of the um, teaching elders in the PCA in America, and they vote on things, and a lot of it's very boring. Um, but what they did is they came out with a statement repenting of sins in regard to racial reconciliation over the years from the denomination. So effectively what they did is they admitted to uh, either actively or passively participating in racial discrimination, and they issued a statement of repentance. PCA wasn't the only denomination to do it. Southern Baptists have done that back in the 90s and other denominations as well. Here's why that's important. They recognize their sin in turning a blind eye to practices that are either inherently um, discriminatory by their cultural perception, uh, where the church might present something as this is what we do and this is biblical, but it has cultural overtones that kind of alienate people who are outside of it. And so the church came out and said, we, we are sorry for this and we hope to move forward. When repentance is genuine, the evidence can be seen. John will refer to it as fruit, same way that you see fruit from a tree. Uh, If I walk by an apple tree, I know that it's an apple tree because apples are hanging from it. And so genuine repentance leads to a certain kind of fruit that demonstrates that the party that says that they're sorry actually are. We know how to test this. You know when uh, someone apologizes to you, whether they really mean it or they're just saying that to gain something. And so time will tell whether or not the church as a whole is genuinely Uh, sorry, and has moved forward. But that's not the focus. So MLK weekend is a time for us to 
think of racial reconciliation, reflect on our own lives. How am I doing that with my neighbors and my coworkers? How's that happening in the church? But on a grander scale, our text this morning is about genuine repentance in general, being able to accurately recognize sins, weaknesses, shortcomings in my life where I fall short of the glory of God and turn from them to Christ. See, genuine repentance that results in life change is what we want to talk about. So what we're going to see here is that John the Baptist is preparing the people for Jesus' arrival by calling them to repentance. Think about that. Jesus is this long-anticipated Messiah, and the way to get people ready, it's not by throwing a party, it's not by handing out flyers, not by making posts on social media, but John starts to proclaim, you all are a bunch of sinners, and you need to turn for your sin to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. See, the people around John, their lives had turned into a direction of presumption and arrogance. And so John proclaimed, the Lord is on his way, therefore you must repent. See, receiving Jesus Christ necessitates three things. One, you acknowledging your sins. Two, you turning away from those sins, turning your back on them. And three, turning toward Jesus Christ for acceptance and forgiveness. And that's what he offers. He died on the cross for our acceptance, for our forgiveness. We need to repent to receive it. And so this is John's message. To receive the kingdom that Jesus Christ brings, you need genuine repentance. And so we're going to look at this in three points. Uh, The prophet of repentance, the call to genuine, genuine repentance. So we'll look at what John's message is, and then we'll look at what the fruit is. What is the result Uh, What does my life look like when I've genuinely repented? Uh, So beginning right at the beginning of the passage, first six verses, we see the introduction to Jesus' public adult ministry is John the Baptist proclaiming repentance. And if you remember at the beginning of Luke, chapter 1, he's writing this gospel to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. We just know that his title is most excellent. So it's likely that he's a higher-up official in some capacity. And what Luke wants to do is give an orderly account. And so in order to give an orderly account, Luke always frames what he's saying in historical context. When you read the Bible, it's important to understand this isn't, doesn't begin once upon a time. It doesn't start off as uh, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This isn't fictional material, right? This is historical data that we're reading. And so Luke names seven historical figures that you could, you could Google them and find out from sources outside of the Bible who they were and what they did. Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor at the time, Pontius Pilate, Herod, a couple other tetrarchs, Annas and Caiaphas, these Jewish high priests. See, Luke's point is not necessarily to give us the date of when these events happened, but he wants the reader to understand what the political landscape in Israel was at the time. Every one of the rulers that he lists are people who are in personal turmoil. Tiberius was a bit nuts, made crazy decisions quite often. Caiaphas, one of the most shady people in existence. We'll see later on in in the gospel, he's the high priest and holds Jesus on trial at night. Pontius Pilate was insecure and allowed his insecurities to govern the way he ran his job. And so what what Luke is painting for us is a picture of these uneasy rulers. And you know what that's like. If you're 
Uh, if you're working for a boss who's unsure of himself and insecure and makes crazy decisions, you're just kind of walking on eggshells all the time. And that's what it felt like in Israel. See, here are people who had been promised um, a kingdom that would last for eternity. Yet they look up and they've got a guy like Tiberius and a guy like Pontius Pilate. And so Luke shows us this to establish there's tension here awaiting the arrival of the Messiah that God promised. And so against this backdrop, we enter John the Baptist, the first fulfillment of the promises of God to this everlasting kingdom. Look with me at verse 2. It says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That phrase, the word of God came to John, is significant. If you look back at the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Hosea, a few other prophets, Joel, Malachi, that's the exact same phrase that's given when they start to preach their ministry. It's almost like a formula. It's God saying, this is the man that I've selected to be my prophet, and what he says comes directly from me. The word of God came to John. This is his election as a prophet. Everything that he's about to say comes straight from God. At this period of time in history, over 400 years have passed since the last time the word of God came to a prophet. Malachi was the last one. And so again, the people of Israel are waiting in angst. They've been promised, you're getting a king, you're getting a redeemer, God's coming, you're getting a savior, it's coming, it's coming. And they're looking around at all these Roman rulers over them who aren't doing the job and wondering, when is God going to redeem us? Uh, there was actually at this time, there were a lot of rebellions and insurrections from within Israel, people rising up and trying to take the kingdom by force. And here's John, the word of God coming to him as a reference to his call from God. See, in the Christian life, there are two calls. The first is your initial call to faith. This is when God, by his spirit, takes your heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh. At that moment, you're granted forgiveness of your sins. You're given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. You're promised everlasting life. If you're a believer, that's what happened to you. God called you. He put his spirit into, his, into your heart and made you a new creation. That's the first call. The second call, and this is what happened to John, actually, before he was even born. If you remember back in chapter 1, Elizabeth is pregnant with him. She goes to visit Mary. Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and we're told that John leaps in the womb. The only time that you're going to be happy about being in the presence of Jesus Christ is if you are a believer. And so the Holy Spirit imparted John's life even when he was um, a baby. The second call is the call to mission. Um, I almost wanted to title that the call to ministry, but I think when we use the word ministry, we often think about pastor, preacher, missionary, church planter. Uh, but when I say mission, hopefully that gets you to understand that uh, right where you are, you're on mission for God. And so that call, I'll give you an example, for me was in the summer of 2006. I'd been a Christian for about two or three years at that point, uh, and I sensed God's call for me to pursue Bible teaching ministry. I remember it very distinctly. I was working as a waiter. I was going to FAU. And when I felt that call that God wanted me to, uh, to teach the Bible, finished that semester of FAU, dropped all my classes, withdrew, and then enrolled in Bible college. Went to Bible college, taught, enrolled in seminary, 
One thing led to another. Here I am at Maplewood. John's call spent about 30 years living his life until this call to become a prophet. Think about that. It was prophesied before he was born. You're going to be like Elijah. You're going to prepare the way. You're going to call people to repentance. It wasn't until he's about 30 years old that God says, it's time for action. And John steps up. See, Luke further emphasizes this by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I'll read that for you. If you look with me in verse 4. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, John is the fulfillment of Isaiah. He's the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Here's what that means. Preparing the way of the Lord means repentance. That's what John is crying out for. He's calling the people to repent. The way that you are prepared for the Lord is by repentance. Another way to say that, if I don't repent, I'm not prepared for the Lord. Uh, oftentimes, you'll see we'll take the Lord's Supper here uh, uh, at, at church, um, and Paul gives a real strict warning um, in Corinthians where he says, even if you're in a state of mind where you haven't forgiven your brother or you're holding a grudge, that you shouldn't take of the elements of the Lord's Supper. I am not prepared to be in the presence of the Lord unless I have repented. So to receive the kingdom that Jesus brings, you need genuine repentance. Second point. The call to genuine repentance. So let's talk, let's focus in on exactly what John is calling the people to. Uh, maybe you've heard of the, um, the theologian Augustine. It's where St. Augustine, is it, when you say the place, you say Augustine. You say the person, you say Augustine. I don't know why. It's spelled the same. Anyway, Augustine, uh, he's a famous 4th and 5th century theologian. Uh, before becoming a Christian, he was really known for a life of debauchery. Um, lustful man, sleeping around, you read his confessions, his mom prayed for him his entire life, and one day, he's outside in a garden in Milan, which just sounds wonderful, you get that mental picture, just reading in a garden in Milan in Italy, that's what he's doing, and he hears a kid singing a song, and the song that the kid is singing is, take it and read, take it and read, I don't know how the lyrics of that would go, that doesn't sound like a great song to me, but God can use anything. And so the Spirit of God entered into Augustine's heart, and at that moment it drew him to Romans chapter 13. And I want to read that for you. Romans 13 says this. This is what Augustine's reading as he hears his kids sing. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. As someone who's struggling with uh, lust and a sexual lifestyle, imagine him reading that passage as the Spirit of God is working on his heart. And at that moment, Augustine was converted, and the rest of his life is marked by genuine repentance. He goes on to preach sermons and uh, write treatises and, doc and doctrines and, and, and battle heretics, and he ends up becoming someone that we look back for all of church history as being a great saint of God. But it started with genuine repentance. See, to repent, what that word means is to look at your sin appropriately as a punishable offense 
before a holy God. And once you realize that, you turn to the only one who can forgive you, and the result is an entirely new life. Uh, Without first acknowledging how sinful you are, you can't fully embrace Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says that he came to heal the sick. It's not those who believe that they're well and believe that they're healthy that go to the doctor. You go to the doctor when you believe that you're sick, and that's what Jesus does. Uh, In order for us to be healed, we've got to know that there's something is wrong and be willing to admit it. Uh, So John begins his preparation for Jesus' arrival, probably the same way that you and I would. He shows up on the scene. He's eating locusts and honey. The honey part I like, the locusts, I'm not about that. Uh, He's wearing clothes and camel's hair. He's living in the wilderness, and he's shouting things like, you brood of vipers. So imagine you're walking in Israel. You've got this crazy man with long hair. He eats bugs, and he's shouting at you and calling you a snake. It's going to take the Spirit of God for you to listen to that man, right? Otherwise, you just chalk that up as crazy, and you you pick a different route. Well, when John calls them a brood of vipers, he's calling them a group of snakes, right? It's not at all a compliment. And I think what John may be referencing is way back to the garden again. Uh, And what you have there is the snake, the serpent. God gives the the judgment to the serpent. And then there's that little uh, little hint of grace in Genesis 3.15 where he says to the woman that your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. So you have these two lines of people throughout human history. Those who are obedient to Christ and follow in his steps offspring of the woman by the grace of Jesus Christ. Those who deny Jesus Christ and walk in their own uh, wisdom without repentance, you are children of the serpent. Jesus would say, your father is the father of lies, the, uh, the, the devil, the serpent, the wicked one. And so John's point is clear enough. An unrepentant heart is the clearest evidence of being outside the saving grace of God, offspring of the serpent. So here's the question that I think should be burning in all of our heads is, how do, you, how do you approach your own sin? See, do you acknowledge freely, willing to admit, I am a sinner, or does the term sinner sound harsh to you? There are places where you can go. You can go to church, lots of places, and there are places where you can go uh, where preachers will make a concerted effort not to use that word. We live in 2020. Uh, We live in an era where we try not to offend people. Um, If you offend somebody, that seems to be the ultimate unforgivable sin. And so to stand up and tell people that they're sinners seems like an unloving thing to do. And so maybe you've been trained to think these mistakes that I make, these shortcomings that I have, it's just being human. It's not a big deal. I wouldn't classify it as sin. Nobody's perfect. And we downplay it. And we weaken it, and we water it down, when accurately, God doesn't look at it that way. God doesn't look at our mistakes and say, it's too bad, it's cute, try better next time. But it's treason against a holy God. And so if your consistent reaction to biblical morality, you read the Bible, and your reaction is you look at it as something that doesn't apply to you, pick and choose passages, you like the inspirational ones that tell you if you have faith, you can, uh, you can conquer mountains, you're like, yes, I love that one. But then the one that says flee from sexual immorality, you're like, ah, skip. They wrote that in the ancient days. It doesn't apply anymore. See, if you look at the Bible that way where you continuously justify and make excuses for your sin, 
maybe even outright deny clear passages as being given by God at all, then you might just be the kind of person that John is talking about. Brood of vipers, little snakes, father, uh, your father is Satan, the devil himself. See, when the Spirit of God really changes you, there's really no other outcome than genuine repentance. You look at the Word of God, and it makes, it makes you cringe a little bit, like, ah, I don't like to hear that about myself, but you're honest. This is accurate. This is who I am before a holy God, and me not liking it isn't going to change it. I need to turn to Jesus Christ, the only one who can wash me and forgive me of the wickedness that's present within me. We saw last week, Jimmy talked about Peter in Luke chapter 5. Such a great passage, and I hope you caught it. See, when Jesus miraculously filled Peter's nets with fish, I often think about that and say, well, what would I do in that, in that situation? I think a lot of people, as you see the nets swelling with fish, your first thought is, i got to draft up a contract, and we got to start a fishing business with this guy Jesus. We'll be rich. We catch fish all the time, and we'll sell them, and we'll just make all kinds of money. Or, or wow, that's a great magic trick. i got to sign you up for my kid's birthday party. you got to do this trick. Peter doesn't say any of those things. You remember what he does? He falls flat on his face, and he says, get away from me. You are far, far too holy. Every time you see people in the Bible confronted with the holiness of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God, it results in genuine repentance. It's the only response. Genuine repentance, recognition. Peter recognized just how uh, wicked and sinful he was and just how holy Christ was, and it led to his repentance. And you remember Jesus' words to him. He says, now I'm going to make you fisher, a fisher of men. See, Peter couldn't have done that unless Christ changed his heart, unless he accurately saw his sin, agreed with what the word of God said about who he was, and said, Jesus, you're the only one who can heal that. And then he went out and proclaimed that message. Unless that repentance happens, you'll never be that. You're never going to go out and, uh, and proclaim the gospel. And so to receive the kingdom that Jesus brings, you need genuine repentance. Which brings us to the final point, the fruit of genuine repentance. Here's what it looks like. John, in his prophetic role, he calls out two specific actions to the people. If you look with me at verse 8, he tells the people, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's the word again. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So let's talk about these. First, Abraham as our father. What is, what's John getting at? So here's what he's saying. There's people coming to be baptized. He understands their hearts. He says, don't come to me with the excuse that Abraham is my father, so I'm okay. Well, what does he mean by that? The Bible is filled with promises to Abraham's descendants. It's all over the place. You turn two pages, you'll find something about Abraham and the promises to him. So the presumption in John's day was people, Israelites, who were physical descendants of Abraham, they believed that God's blessing was on them simply because they were who they were. I live in Israel. My parents are from Israel. My grandparents are from Israel. We were promised blessing by God. What else do we have to do? So it was a bit of an arrogant position. They believed that by being an Israelite, they were good and okay with God. And so what it resulted in is they would, they'd offer half-hearted sacrifices, read the law, and say, ah, I don't really have a lamb. I've got this duck. Let's just offer that. Maybe God will be pleased. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm good to go. 
They prayed once in a while when it was convenient. Maybe when things got scary, they asked God to intervene. And they believed that it was all okay because they were descendants of Abraham. See, I think presumption might be the biggest blind spot of all time, and I think we often suffer from it as well. See, you might presume that you are in God's saving grace simply because of where you live or what you do for a living. Being in America and having the kind of wealth that we have is very easy to be blinded about the reality of who we are. Man, God's gracious to me, obviously not gracious to those other countries, those third world places that don't have what I have. I must be good. I must be in God's grace. So your job is good. Your lifestyle is positive. You don't drink and drive, whatever. So you're on God's good side. He must like you because you're a genuinely decent person most of the time. And you presume maybe because, you know, I go to church about half the year, twice a month, whatever it is. I pop in and out. I pray. I read my Bible once in a while. I'm on God's good side. What about those people who don't go at all? Look at me. I I at least come once in a while. And so we believe that because we do that, we're on God's good side. We're not accurately looking at our hearts and where we stand before a holy God. We're not compelled by the holiness of Christ to make a change. And so that's what John's calling out. He says you're walking in presumption. You believe that God's gracious to you just because of who you are. That's not how it works. Second thing that John's call is, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And here's what he means. If your repentance is genuine, there's clear, external, observable, tangible evidence for all to see that there's been a distinct change in your life. If you've been walking with Christ for some time, you've probably seen that. I hope you have. Maybe you have friends from your past who see you now and they think it's all a joke. Maybe they make fun of you or maybe they, uh, they look at you as if uh, you're a completely different person than you used to be. Wear that as a badge of honor because Jesus Christ has made a change, has brought about genuine repentance in your life. So as John preaches this message, there's three types of people who come up to him and have this response. John preaches, the word of God cuts into their heart, they're convicted, and their response to John is, man, you're right. What do we do now? You told me I'm a brood of vipers. You told me that I I presume because I'm a descendant of Abraham. And you told me that my walk is not in step with genuine repentance. What should I do? And John gives three actions to the three different kinds of people. And I want to examine them, and then we'll close. First, there's the crowd. Second, there's tax collectors. And last, there's soldiers. So these people are listening to John preach. They receive the word of God, and then like preaching should do, it causes them to think about what actions should result. First, to the crowd, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. So what's John saying here? He's saying that if I'm generous with my clothing, God will look at that and say, thank you for being generous with your clothes. Welcome into the kingdom. It's not what he's saying. He's saying if you really have repented and turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior, generosity and lack of greed is going to be an external, observable characteristic of your life. You can pretty much define non-conversion to Christ as inherent selfishness. That's what it is. If I haven't turned to Jesus Christ, that means I'm still the Lord of my own life, and I'm going to walk in greed, 
and not be generous. See, why wouldn't someone who has two tunics give away one to someone who has none? The only reason you wouldn't do that is out of selfishness. You say something like, well, I've got two, this one's blue, this one's red, I need my blue one, I need my red one, I can't give you one. This is my favorite one, I like to wear this on the weekends, I need that one when winter comes around, whatever. A genuinely repentant heart will be aware of the needs of other people and seek opportunities to meet them. That's what John's saying. You are looking at other people with empathy. You understand their state of mind and what's going on in their life, and you try to use your influence, whatever you have more of, to step in and bring about grace and mercy in their life, even at the detriment of yourself. A genuinely repentant heart does that. You care about other people. He's saying that what, this is what it looks like when repentance has already happened. Second, tax collectors. He says, don't steal, don't take money more than you're supposed to. This comes from uh, verse 12 and 13. Tax, tax collectors also came to be baptized, said, teacher, what shall we do? And in verse 13, he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Uh, tax collectors were notoriously wicked people, just to understand what their job was. These were native Jewish people who were working for the Roman government. So the Romans came in, they take over, they're trying to exact taxes from their people, and so they would employ tax collectors in each realm and in each city to go and get taxes from other people. Now, if you wanted to make a good living for yourself as a tax collector, you'd collect the standard percentage, whatever it was, and you'd also charge a little bit more, a fee, a convenience fee, whatever you want to call it. Think about going to a, a car dealership. It's like that. You charge a little bit more than you're supposed to so you can pocket the difference. And what John says to those people who are watching him and listening to his preaching, he's saying, don't do that. Only collect what your government has told you to collect. Don't, don't take any extra. And the way to get ahead as a tax collector was to do that. So essentially he's saying, live your life broke. Be willing to be in poverty. Be willing to not have the nicest house on the block and the nicest car in the neighborhood. Be willing to do that for the sake of your neighbor. See, that's no different than many businesses today. You sell insurance, you sell cars, you sell bubble gum, whatever, who cares? The, the, the American way is to go as hard as you possibly can to extract as much money from the people as you can. If you got to do it underhanded, you do it underhanded. If you got to uh, lie to people, if you got to promise people things that uh, maybe you can't deliver on, but you're going to make a profit off of that, you do that. And what John is saying is that if you are genuinely re repentant, you operate your business in a Christian way. You do it with character. You do it with honesty. You do it with integrity. I think about a good friend of mine, Ken Poyer, who ran a, a mechanic shop for a long, long time. And we know notoriously how mechanics can be. You walk in, like I'm one of those guys, I walk into a mechanic shop, whatever you tell me, I'm going to write a check for so that you you take care of my car. I have no idea what you're talking about. I am the definition of a sucker. So Ken Poyer, Christian man, ran a mechanic shop for years on the basic principle of I'm not going to rob anybody. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need. I'm going to tell you the exact price, and I'm going to fix only what needs to be fixed. Christian man operating in the world with honesty and with integrity. That's what genuine repentance causes. It's quite easy, right? Someone walks in and, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. You can sell them some, 
some new wiper blades and change out the muffler and whatever. You can tell them all those things and gain extra dollars, or you can operate with integrity because you are walking in step with Christ. Finally, to the soldiers, he says, uh, verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. See, soldiers were in, a, were in a position of power and strength. They could use their authority to bully. And so the application is pretty clear. Uh, in the next few weeks, you're going to see Jesus demonstrate his authority in an entirely different way. His entire ministry, Jesus demonstrates he has authority over the wind, over the waves. We just referenced that story in Luke 5. He's got authority over the fish in the ocean. Like tells the fish, you get in this net so that I can catch you. And yet Jesus doesn't exercise that authority with power and strength. Rather, he exercises it with grace and with mercy and calls others who follow him to do the exact same thing. Takes his power to turn Peter from a fisherman to a fisher of men. We're to do the same. If you're in a position of power or authority, you're a boss, you're a manager, team leader, teacher, whatever, most of us have some position of authority somewhere in our lives, and the temptation is always to take that power and use it to benefit ourselves. Well, what does authority exist for? It exists to tell us a little bit about God, and it exists to bring other people up and walk in those footsteps of being, uh, being able to lead themselves. Use your power to influence and elevate others. That's what Christ's kingdom is about. See, we're following a man, this portrait of a king, who took the kingdom of heaven, cast it aside, became born in a manger, lived, in, lived impoverished in the Middle East to Mary and to Joseph, working as a carpenter, allowing himself to be ridiculed so that he can give the keys of his kingdom to you and I. Read Matthew chapter 16. That's exactly what he says, that the keys of his kingdom belong to the disciples. Peter, to John, to James, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, people who had no societal standing, Jesus gave the ultimate standing going forward. To the, us who have no worth and value when it comes to our, our moral, our morality and our righteousness before God, Jesus lavishes it all upon us. And so have you genuinely repented? Have you trusted in Christ in such a way that your life and entire approach to it is different? Is it obvious to other people? I don't mean in a weird way where you're walking around and you, you understand what I'm saying. There's, there's the weird Jesus thing and then there's the I've genuinely repented and I've come to Christ and this is what my life is marked by and I'm not ashamed of any part of it. And that's what we're talking about. See, my life and my approach to it has got to be entirely different not by choice or by actions, but by the power and the mercy of God. It's important to remember that repentance that John preaches, it isn't a one-time thing. See, as a Christian, this is something that we're constantly doing. You never stop sinning, and so you never stop repenting. This should mark your life. You should be the kind of person who uh, you, you get too angry at your kids and you say something that you shouldn't have to them, repent in front of them. Apologize to them. Let them know that you're weak and that you need God's mercy just as much as they do. You speak ill to your spouse. Be, be man or woman enough to apologize for that. Repent publicly, openly. Model that for other people. 
making mistakes at work. Don't try to cover it up and hide it. Speak openly about that because it demonstrates, here's why I do these things. Here's why I seek forgiveness and I'm willing to admit faults. Because I serve the one who died for those faults. I serve the one who empowers me by his spirit to walk in mercy and in grace. And I want you to have that as well. And so when we live a repentant life, it draws others into a repentant life. The temptation is always going to be there for us to hold on to the possessions that we have. If I got two tunics, I'm keeping them. Uh, for us to be like tax collectors, using our jobs to uh, gain our own social status or to be like the soldiers where we're using our power and authority for our own gain. Jesus' Jesus's kingdom is upside down. It's where we use power, we use money, we use possessions, we use influence for the benefits of other people. That's what a genuinely repentant heart is like. And so my hope and prayer for all of us is that uh, in these moments, these quiet moments, as, uh, as Anna comes back up and Jesus comes back up and they sing, that you're reflecting on your heart. Lord, reveal to me the weak parts of my soul that I need to put, uh, put at the feet of your cross and repent of. And help me to walk in this newness of life that I might be of the character of your son to draw others into a life of repentance as well. That's what we're called to. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what our king has modeled for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for simply the opportunity to repent. As we talk about power and authority and wielding it in, in ways that are uh, detrimental to other people, you have all power and authority. It would have been, it would have been perfectly uh, within your rights to say to us, as you did to the people prior to the flood, you're sinful, you're wicked, every inclination of your thought is only, is only evil all the time, and wipe us out. But you haven't done that. You've given us grace. You sent your son. He died for us, and now we walk by the power of your spirit. We ask that that spirit would lead us to the cross day after day, going to you for mercy and for grace that we need, that we would accurately uh, assess who we are, that we wouldn't walk in presumption about the status that we have, but that we would, uh, we would recognize our need for Jesus Christ, for your mercy, and we ask that you would give it in your grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to go into uh, a period of passing the tithe and offering plate. I also just want to remind you, if there's any prayer requests you have, uh, you can write it on a piece of paper on the back of the envelope. Uh, and us as the church, we want to pray for you in whatever way that, that might be. So if you have one of those or if you want to fill it out at the end of this service, there's some drop boxes in the back. Um, but our ushers will come by and pass around the tithes and offering.
Fuck.